listening to the No Life Skills Podcast with your host, Ashlyn. My advice for other sex workers, don't do what I did. Giving you an inside look at the fascinating world of sex work. Yeah, a little bit awkward, but uh, informational, I guess. Connect with other professionals and allies of the industry. I was like, wow, this is easy money. Now, join the conversation while we share inspiring stories on the No Life Skills Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of No Life Skills. I'm Ashlyn. Thanks for tuning in this week. This week on No Life Skills, my other hooker mom, Cougar Nikki, joins me. Yes, I have more than one. The more the merrier. She is a sex worker from Winnipeg and she travels all over Canada. She's been in the industry a very long time. You'll hear from her story. I just want to give a big, big, big trigger warning here. This episode is probably the heaviest episode that I have released. This is even heavier than the episodes that I did with Lula, I think. I just want to give a big trigger warning. We talk about some really heavy stuff, child abuse, sexual abuse, child trafficking, rape. So I just wanted to give you guys a heads up and of what's to come. I also want to say sorry, the audio is a little bit fucked up on this episode. Just had some problems with the microphone. Most of it's okay, but you'll hear like a little bit of background noise. Sorry about that. I have no life skills, okay? I'm just faking it till I make it here. So in the future, I will try and fix that. I'm super excited for everybody to hear Nikki's story. It's absolutely insane and extremely eye-opening. I ended up breaking this episode into two parts, so I hope you all enjoy the first part and make sure you listen to the end of the episode where I answer some questions that I've been sent over the past couple weeks. Hi, everybody. I'm here with Cougar Nikki, my other hooker mom. She's originally from Winnipeg and she travels all over Canada. She came to Edmonton just for me. (laughs) I did. I did. So, Nikki, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Cougar Nikki, and I'm here with the beautiful Adore Ashlyn. Hello, everyone. (laughs) I'm sure you guys have all heard my beautiful voice on Twitter. Yes. So, Nikki, are you originally from Winnipeg? Born and raised. Sorry about that. (laughs) So, what are some fun things to do in Winnipeg if someone's visiting? Um, well, I, I often tell people to stay out of the North End, the West End, West End, um, downtown. Just stay in your hotel. Yeah. Yeah. Just stay in your hotel. You can visit the Human Rights Museum. But, but all humor <laughs> aside, um, the Forks are really nice. There's a lot of, um, the Human Rights Museum, yeah. There's a lot of um, history regarding um, sex work in, in Winnipeg. So if you are a sex worker and you want to go to Winnipeg and look at some of the history. It's actually pretty interesting. Very cool. And what is something you're passionate about? Ooh, what am I passionate about? I am passionate about sexual exploitation and protecting our children and our youth from predators and sexual exploitation. That's awesome. And what do you like to do for fun? Ooh, what do I like? I like to travel a lot. Um, The Caribbean is one of my favorite places to go. I have lots of family there. I like to eat edibles. <laughs> um, what else do I like? And yeah, I like to travel. Traveling is probably one of my biggest passions. I like to camp, big camper, quarter, outdoors person. Cool. I love that. Funny story about the edibles. When I visited Nikki in August, I think she gave me these edibles and I was on tour. I was like not sleeping very well. I just don't sleep well in hotels. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to take a nibble of this edible because she told me it was really strong. And I remember I was in Saskatoon and I think I had an appointment the next morning at like, I don't know, 10 or something for two hours. And so I took this edible. I was like, man, I'm going to sleep like the dead. Well, I was fucked up on this edible until the afternoon the next day. I had to text my client. I was like, 
It was Doritos Man. I'm like, hey, Doritos Man, <laughs> we got to push it back because I'm fucked up off Cougar Nikki's edible. I've never been this stoned in my life. And he's like, haha, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He didn't mind. He didn't mind. But yeah, so that's funny. So uh, yeah, she has really good edibles. <laughs> so um, Nikki is here today because she has a very interesting story. She's actually spoken to high school students about it. She was a victim of human sex trafficking when she was younger. And so she's here to tell the story. So I guess what I want to know first is like, how did this all start? Like, what was your childhood like? Take us back to the beginning. Oh, the beginning. Um, Well, I grew up um, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and I was raised by um, my mother, who was a single mom. My father was absent. So with that... Um, I have to stress this when I when I speak about my story is that men that are listening to the podcast, if you are a parent to a young girl, um, make sure that you're always present in their lives because it's very important. Little little girls need their dads. So with that being said, when as as a young girl, I often didn't know what real love was for men, right? Because I was often raised by my mom, who was a single mom working all the time. So I didn't have a lot of male associations around me to, to teach me. And my mom was very, very into like in herself. She didn't, she didn't have relationships with men. She just, her, her life was concentrated on raising us. Um, we struggled. By the time I was 12, I, I had already been sexually abused multiple times in my life. Um, my first abuse started at four. And there's a very, very, very um, strong connection between child sexual abuse, addiction, sexual exploitation, all of that. I was sexually abused very young. So by the time I was 12, I, I had already started with my coping skills. Coping skills are extremely important in, in, in humans. Uh, if you don't have positive coping skills in your life, you're going to end up with negative coping skills, negative, positive coping skills. They're coping skills. They're what keep you alive. Um, whether they're negative, whether they're positive. I don't knock anybody for their skills because that's what keeps us alive at the end. Yeah. And when you grow up without positive influences in your life, you don't know any better. You're just trying to survive. And that's how people, you know, have unhealthy coping skills. Yes. And you, you get into survival mode, right? So by the time I was 12, I was already smoking marijuana, drinking, popping acid, doing mushrooms, you know? So I had already exper- been been experimental with with drugs and alcohol and all of that. And stuff. who were you doing these things with? Like your friends or people like people your age, also so my young. My peers, my my friends, my my best friend's dad at the time didn't care. He would buy us all of our alcohol, give us drugs, and we would party at his house. At twelve. At twelve. Twelve. Yep. And so that went on for about a year until I woke up one night and he was on top of me because I was sleeping there. So that put an end to all of the partying because I ended up charging him. But back then, because this was the party house, everybody looked down on me saying that I was lying, that I deserved it, that, you know, I was a slut. Meanwhile, I was a virgin. And, you know, it was, yeah, just... (laughs) That's horrible. And so you charged him and did he go to jail? No, he ended up being on the child abuse registry list. But he never went to jail or anything like that. Is that just because of the time it was? Like, people didn't go to jail for that? Like, um, that's pretty fucked up. It was up. because there was no physical evidence that he did anything. He had his fingers inside of me. Right. But they could still charge him with something, though. So it, he was guilty, and then people still looked down on you for that? Yeah. Yeah. They still looked down on me because it was 
it, he didn't actually get prosecuted. It was agreed that he would be put on the child abuse registry. And that was about it. So for the rest of his life, he was on that child abuse registry list. So after that, that's when my life, my mom decided I needed to go to treatment for drugs and alcohol. 12 years old, 13. So I did that and I was sober for about two years. And then I decided that I was going to rebel. And back then when girls were exploited or when we were, we turned to prostitution, it was called rebellious. We were manipulative, rebellious, labeled you know, psychotic, runaways. That's what we were labeled. We weren't labeled sexually exploited victims of abuse. That's not what we were labeled, right? So I, my mother, I was rebellious. My mom was a single mom. She told me I quit school. I just want to know, did you have siblings or are you an only child? I have an older sister who gave me my first hoot of marijuana. Okay. (laughs) But um, yeah, I have an older sister. She's uh, three years older than me. Um, my mom decided that I, I decided to quit school. I told her that my mom told me that I had to get a job or leave. I chose to leave. And I was babysitting for a friend. And my friend um, had a sexually exploited youth, runaway, you know, rebellious youth living in her basement. And this girl, this young girl, she must have been about 15. She was getting all dolled up. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, where where are you going? She goes, I'm going, I'm just going to go and make some money. And I said, what? I said, looking like that, like, where are you going? She's like, I'm just going to take the bus and I'm going to, she took the bus down to track and she would take the bus down to track. And so then I was like, hmm, I'm homeless. I have nowhere to live. I have no money. I'd like to get high on some marijuana, you know, like. So she's like, well, you can come with me. And I was And how like, old were you? 13? 12? I was no, 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 I was older. Okay. I was um I was 15 and a half. So I <laughs> proceeded to get ready, take the bus down to track, stepped out onto track. And did you even know what track was at this point? No, she no, you know, she just told me that that to stay away from the pimps that there'd be lots of pimps trying to pick me up. But I had such a low self-esteem as a child due to bullying in school. I should have actually said that before. But the bullying in school was was absolutely terrifying. Like I, I came from, I was, I lived in a richer area and my parents were divorced. And it was back then, it was like almost taboo for, for parents not to be together. So I was really looked down upon by my peers and I was really bullied in school, like horribly. And, and after that, that abuse issue, happened, mm-hmm. then it was even worse. Like it was just horrifying. So you left school because of all the bullying yes. and stuff like that. I yeah. See. Okay. Yeah. I left school because of that. But back then there was no bullying policies or anything. Right. So I, I ended up on the streets of Winnipeg and within, I saw one client. I, I'll never forget. I don't know if I call him a client or a predator at this point, but eh, predator. <laughs> yeah. He was a predator. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll never forget my first client. Predator. I'll never forget. And so, walk us through what was, what that was like. Were you just standing somewhere? Like, did he roll up in a car? On the corner of Higgins and Austin, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, in front of the drunk tank, and up rolled a van with an elderly gentleman, probably in his fifties. And I gave him a. I performed fellatio. I'll never forget for forty dollars. And so, <laughs> did you know that's what you were going to be doing when you got to the track when you stepped off that bus? Like, or did like what did your this girl tell you? Like, she told me what we were what I was going to be doing. I knew what I was going to be doing. I just wanted a quarter of marijuana, and I was going to be good, right? So I saw I was going to see two people. 
get my quarter, and I was good. And that was the last I was ever going to do of it. So I thought. So how do you go from that? Then did you start working with her more often? No, within an hour of me being on track, I was picked up by pimps, by traffickers. Because they know who's pimped and who's not. They know who belongs to who, right? That is correct. So within an hour, I was picked up by a um, gang member who was affiliated with the Los Bravo Bikers. And he pimped me for about two weeks. And then I was sold to another pimp. So how did he approach you? Like, did he like kidnap you? Like, how did that work? Um, he came to me and he he looked at me and said, you're working for me now. And the thing about the manipulation when it comes to pimps is they grab you, they manipulate you, they tell you that they're going to do all this stuff for you. And as a 15 and a half year old little girl who, because I was a little girl, who has no coping skills, who has, who's very immature, who had no male role model in her life. Listening to this was like, oh, he cares about me. I had a very low self-esteem. He cares about me. He loves me. Oh, look, he's protecting me. Oh, look, all I have to do is this. Well, you know, it, it, it took a couple days to realize, like, I was sodomized within a couple days by my pimp. I was raped. I was forced to work. I was starved. I was just all to get control, right? They threatened to, because I wanted to leave, I would cry and be like, I want to go home now, you know, like a little girl. And they told me that if I left, they would blow up my fucking house, my, my family's house. Okay, so you obviously knew that you were being pimped, yeah. correct? Okay, did you encounter other women that maybe didn't realize that they were being trafficked at the time? Because mm. I heard that's oh, yeah. very common. Okay. Oh, yeah, in Winnipeg especially. Like, there's one lady in particular that I know that doesn't drink, smoke, or do drugs. She never has. She was pimped from the time she was 17 on by her boyfriend, right? Her Romeo pimp, who, you know— He took everything from her until she was in her 40s and he got rid of her. Married her because he got charged with living off the valence of prostitution at one point. So he got deported back to his country. She went back to his country, married him, brought him back. And then he ended up leaving her eventually anyway. And and that's the sad thing is she supported all his dreams, all of his business ventures, all of his stuff. And for what? Right? Romeo pimps. 101. Do you think it's more common for pimps to be like a Romeo pimp opposed to like someone like just straight up like well everything's abusive all pimping is abusive but like what you experienced in the beginning yes now it is um like I I have a lot of conversations about this that pimping isn't the same anymore pimping I believe pimps are the drug dealers now pimps are drug dealers pimps are I'm gonna I'm going to say it some of the agencies are pimps not gonna lie Mm -hmm. um you know some of the parlor women are pimps like pimps aren't only men there are women pimps too lots of them Mm-hmm. I just have a question since we're on the topic of the studios and I was thinking about this earlier, but I, I'll, we'll get back to your story after. Um, so what do you think about the predominantly Asian studios? Because I've always heard that those are major sources of human trafficking because these women come to Canada, they can't speak English, you know, and then there's been instances where they found women in these Asian studios who live there. They're there 24 hours. They don't see any other money. Well, <clears throat> I speak a lot to my clients. I talk to them about those parlors. I talk to them about different cities that they travel. I've heard mixed stories about those parlors. I've heard guys say that they've gone there and it's the best time of their life. And I've heard guys that have gone there and, mm, you know, it's a little sketchy. There's girls shaking in the corner, you know, and bruised. There's cameras everywhere. They can't speak English. They know very little phrases. 
I don't want to say that all of those parlors are into human trafficking, but I do believe that there is an underbelly of human trafficking going on in those parlors. Yes, some of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought as well. So you, this guy, he pimped you out for two weeks. Why did he want to sell you to someone else? Why? Um, he sold me to his friend because his friend, me and his friend, I liked his friend. Like, as a boyfriend type thing. I, I liked him, thought he was cute and thought that this was going to be the best thing to ever happen to me. How much did he sell you for? Um, he sold me for $1,000. Yeah. $1,000. Yeah. That's what I was worth. <laughs> and so did you realize that he was selling you at the time or did you just think you were going to have a boyfriend? I just thought I was going to have a boyfriend now. And then um, my expectations were to recruit. So I became a recruiter. Were you still working though? Like seeing guys? Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. So the recruiters do both. The recruiters do both. What I was considered was the main, right? So there's a whole, like back in the 80s and 90s, it was a whole, I hate referring it to this way, glamour days. I I call it glamour days. Like you see, like we talked about it earlier a little bit, but you see the women now how we dress up for our photo shoots and we've got the big boots on. That's how I dressed out on track at 15 and a half years old. I was in big stiletto boots. I was in leather. I, that's what we looked like. It was almost unreal. Like it's almost unrealistic to think about it now. And like the rules, there was rules to this game. Like you couldn't look at a live pimp. You couldn't. Because they, because what you said earlier is that if you looked at another pimp, they they would choose you or you would choose them. Yes, correct. And it could be hard for your pimp to get you back. Right. So, um, especially the pimps from the United States. And back then, the, the pimps were predominantly um, African-American or bikers. That's what they were. Um, so, a lot of the prejudice and a lot of the stigma associated with pimps and black men now comes from that era of when a lot of the pimps were black. I hate to say it, but it's the truth. Mm -hmm. Because even now, a lot of people will notice as they look on the ads and stuff on Leo List, whatever, uh, so many say no black gents. And I was told many, many years ago that by, like, through Cease um, in Edmonton that those ads say that because they don't want pimps stealing each other's girls, which is actually, like, that actually happens. Yes, it does happen. Like, guys, it, it was not unheard of for pimps to come on your street corner and like they'll start out really nice and they would be like, oh, baby, oh, baby, look at you. You're so sexy. You're so sexy. Oh, honey. Oh, honey. I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. I'll do this for you. This for you. Protect you. Buy you things. Buy you a car. Buy you this. Buy you that. Buy you this. Take you on trips. They say all this shit. And when they realize that you're not going to look at them, that you're looking down, you had to look down. Like that's how sick and demented this pimp world was. You had to look down. So, and so then when, when they realize they weren't getting you that way, then they start to insult you, calling you down, calling you useless, calling you gross, calling you this so that you'll look at them and be like, fuck you. Right. But if you do that, then you choose them. And so are you standing out there alone or are you with other girls at the time? Typically we're with our little hooker family, right? Like we were with our other girls. And was track like how you sometimes hear like, uh, you stay to a particular street or a particular corner, like different pimps own different areas. In Winnipeg, what we had was we had high track, low track, and kitty track. So high track was all the furs and all the whatever. Low track, middle track, low track was, it, it was all pimped though. It didn't matter where you were, you were pimped everywhere. 
So some girls worked both low end and high track because high track wasn't always busy, right? Where low track, low track was pretty busy all the time. I worked low middle track because I was so young. So I, I had to kind of hide in the shadows, right? So you would think, this is horrible, but that you would make more being so young. Is that the case or no? Um, I did make good money. Um, I wasn't a top girl out there at, by all means. The prices were a lot different back then than they are now. The high track women would often come down to try and recruit, right? So it was all about the recruiting. And then there was like kitty track, which was anywhere from 9 to 12 years old, right? Like, it's not unheard of in Winnipeg. The beginning age is not as young as nine. Like I think youngest kid that we ever saw on the streets of Winnipeg was I think about eight and she was strategically placed on a corner with adults watching her. And like, you know, it's usually the mothers. So the drug addicts in Winnipeg are, it's very bad, the drug addiction cases in Winnipeg. So it is not unheard of for women to be selling their daughters to crack dealers and to predators and, you know, having them watch or, you know, having the naked little child there. And it's very sad and very sick. Um, I know of actually right now, presently, I know of a 13-year-old who's just being sold repetitively for drugs in a gang house. And what can you do? She loves her boyfriend. Like now. Like, right now. Presently. And so why do you think people think this stuff doesn't happen? Like this happens everywhere. I think that people honestly just turn a blind eye. And if you look at the teenagers today, they don't look like teenagers. They, they look like grown-ass women. And like, they're not, they're not allowing themselves to grow up. They're just, you know, they want to rush into being an adult and rush into wearing Louis Vuitton. And it's so sad. And they don't realize that the trauma that they're inflicting on themselves is going to carry with them for the rest of their lives, right? As you can tell. So then you had this Sorry. boyfriend. Yeah, this is Sorry. a lot. No. This is a lot, isn't it? Oh, man. No, it's very, it's super interesting, that one, very eye-opening. So, okay, had you had your boyfriend. Oh, I thought he was like the kitten's meow. Oh, I guess I should say that the first pimp gave me my first taste of cocaine. Oh, love that. Nice. Love that, right? 15 years old, let's give her some coke. So were they just trying to, like, fuck you up to, like... He told me it was crystals from marijuana, because remember, I liked my marijuana, right? So he told me it was the crystals from marijuana and stuck it in a joint. My mouth got all numb, and... I didn't understand and I was all messed up and I, I didn't understand. And that is the night he sodomized me. Wow. That's horrible. Cause you, I would think a son's trying to give someone drugs like nowadays, uh, down like fentanyl or like heroin downers are popular because you're kind of out of it. But if you're giving someone cocaine, you're not, you're wired. Right. Yeah. So I, I mean, that's horrible still, but <laughs> makes no sense. Right. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I guess a lot of times what the pimps will try and do is get you addicted to drugs. Mm -hmm. Right. So that you're yeah. it, that they're in control of you. And yeah. um, that happened later on. Like I was exploited for probably about a year and a half. And I like I said in my Twitter status, by the time my family got me back, I was so undernourished. I was probably about 82 pounds. I was in a program called Turf. And you got paid weekly to go to participate in this program. It was training employment resources for females. And I had to step on the scale and gain a weight, a pound before they would give me money. But I was still with my pimp. Even when I had exited, I stayed with him for about six months after. Your boyfriend. My boyfriend. My so, boyfriend pimp. So you didn't think he was your pimp this whole time? You thought he was just your boyfriend? He was, well, I knew he was my pimp too, right? But, but I thought he loved me. 
I thought I was different. Did he have other girlfriends or were you the only one? I caught him with so many other girls and, you know, and those were, those were the worst beatings, right? Is when I would confront him about other women and then I would get beat. So I learned very quickly just to keep my mouth shut because otherwise I got beat. But with this guy, didn't matter what I did. I, I got beat. It's, he was just, he was very sick, very toxic. He was, um, I think he had a very low self-esteem himself. So he took that out on me almost daily. And so you were with this guy for about a year and a half, you said. Mm-hmm. And so you said you were trafficked all across mm-hmm. Canada. So do you want to tell us about that? Like, what was that like driving around? What cities did you go to? Like, were you always working on the street as well? Or did you start working like out of hotels? Like, No. Uh, well, um, we lived in a hotel. But like, so in Winnipeg, we lived at uh, <laughs> the Continental. Sounds nice. <laughs> it was known for underage prostitutes, even though it's, we would never call an underage uh, sexually exploited youth that. But back then, that's what we were called. We were called underage prostitutes. So it was very, very, very well known for that. And we would take a cab down to track, which was about 15 minutes away. We never brought our clients back to the hotel unless they were really good paying clients. And most of the track clients were not good paying clients. It was mostly just bam, bam, bam. So at this time, you're only doing car dates, right? Correct. Okay. So would they, would they, oh God, oh my God, stick shifts. Would they ever like try and take you back to their homes or anything like that? I had, I think that this is very important. I had some of my worst experiences when I was exploited with clients, the whole nine yards. So that just tells you that this whole FOSTA, SESTA, decriminalizing and criminalizing our Johns is not helpful because I was exploited and I still didn't feel comfortable enough to come forward and say anything to anybody when I was abused and when I was held hostage or when I was hurt or beaten or... Did you know these things were wrong or at the time did you just think that's what life is like oh that's just how how the game goes you know that's how the game goes you know this come you take the good with the bad is what your pimps would tell you oh they're there right they're there let me let me stroke your hair let me run you a bath oh I'll, I'll kiss your bruises better but the next day are you ready to go to work dear you know just like the pimps they don't beat your face right and so when you're getting money from your clients your predators. Mm-hmm. Did you keep any money to yourself or did you give no. everything to your pimp? Everything would, went to my pimp. Every um, single penny went to my pimp. And would you ever try and like hide money or anything like that? I did try to hide money. He found it and I got beaten really, really bad. I, um, one time, you know, as a 15, 16 year old girl, the Winnipeg X was in town and I wanted to go to the, the X, right? Like, like any other teenager, we want to go to the X. So another girl, and remember I told you about the recruiters, mm-hmm. another woman who was pimped by another man said, well, let's go to the X then. And I'm like, okay. Did you know she was a recruiter? Well, yeah, I knew she worked for another man. Okay. So I was like, yeah, let's go, let's go. So I went without my pimp's knowledge, without my pimp's permission. I got back to track four hours later. He Back then I had a pager. So he had been, <laughs> yeah, good picture. So he, wow. <laughs> so he was paging me repetitively and I wasn't answering him. So when I got back on track and he found out I was back on track because he got, he got a phone call saying she's here. Um, cause he had those big dinosaur cell phones. Um, he came and he had a hip bag filled with quarters, dimes and nickels. And he beat me so bad on track in front of 
hundreds of people because it was right in front of the Salvation Army of where people lived. So it was an apartment full of people. And, you know, I'm being beaten in broad daylight. Nothing's done. You know, all these young girls, we were 15, 14, 16, 17 on the streets, selling our ass, being pimped and victimized. Nobody did anything. Not not anything. Nobody cared. It was crazy. Nobody cared. We were labeled all these negative things. We were told we were bad. We were locked up in places that weren't specialized. And we were... During this time, did you have any friends that weren't in the sex industry or being trafficked, like normies, you know, like civilians? I did have normal friends. They didn't understand at all what was going on. Um, My pimp would let me occasionally go visit my family. And people from my high school used to come down to track and drive around and throw pennies at me. Yeah. So, you know, it was... (laughs) Nobody thought, oh, we should probably help this girl. No, because back then, we weren't labeled as sexually exploited youth. We were runaways, and we were rebellious, and we were, oh my God, criminalized. We were criminalized. Were you criminalized in the eyes of the police as well? Is that why you were afraid to ask for help? or? or Absolutely, yeah. So with me, um, as a youngster, I played ringette for 10 years. Um, so my one of my coaches was a police officer. So <laughs> funny story. <laughs> I'm standing on track in Winnipeg in my big stiletto boots. And he drives by in his vice car. And I'm like, oh, my God. I literally booked it down a back lane. There was a cab driver that I knew. I dove in his window. He had the window open. I dove in the window because the vice cop was, he, he was going to come and grab me. Because at this time I was in, in the care of child and family services. So he was going to arrest you? Yes. The, he would have arrested me. They would have, what they do is they arrest you. They either threw you in lockup or they brought you back to your foster home, which, and my foster home was really, really far because my mother had to um, relinquish her rights of me because I was a, child in need of protection is how they looked at it. Because of your own actions or because of your mother's actions? Because of my own actions, because I was running away. I was a chronic runaway, right? So in order to help me more, they said to put me in care. Mm -hmm. And they put me in care with this woman who had an independent living home because I was already 16. So independent living home, um, she was pregnant. I was gone for three months. She didn't even report me missing because she didn't want the checks to stop. The system is so fucked. I can't even believe this. Holy Christ. And that's why I chose to go into the system and try and help people, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. To help these kids. And yeah, it's not very helpful. So you asked cities. Um, Mm -hmm. I worked in Calgary and it was always on the street. Like I was too young. I couldn't work in parlors. I couldn't work for agencies because I was... 16. You had to be 18. But like, so nowadays we, when girls travel, when women travel, sorry, that we get hotels and stuff. So you wouldn't like get a separate room to work out. It was just the street. Like that wasn't a thing people did back then. That is not a thing that I did Mm -hmm. personally. No, we, it was always the street. It was quicker. And at this time there wasn't, was there places to advertise online or not really? Okay. So this was before everything still. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Even when I exited and went into social services, like this was probably 2007 ish. There was, there was no online yet. Like Backpage was just coming. So there was Escorts Canada was online, but a lot of people were in newspapers, track, escort agencies, or massage parlors. So when I came back to this business, I actually sought out one of my friends who owned an escort agency in Regina, and I went and was 
working for her in Regina. Mm -hmm. What are some other places you went? Like, how long were you on the road? Were you on the road because you guys were running from the police or was it more lucrative to go to new cities and make money there? Like, why were you traveling? Well, um, eventually it became difficult for me to work on the streets of Winnipeg because I was known by vice, right? So you're running from the cops. I was running from the police because I was a chronic runaway. I was running away. So they just want to grab you and snatch you and lock you up, right? That'll help. Yeah. You were traveling because you were running from the cops. So, and was it also, like, did you make more money when you were out of town too, like in other cities? Because that's kind of why girls travel today to make more money. My anxiety actually went up higher in in other cities because I didn't know the pimps. I didn't know the hoes. I didn't know who I was running into. You had to like be all this fake person, pretend you're 18. Like I have an AKA that follows me for the rest of my life because I got caught with a stun gun when I was 16. And I got caught with fake ID. So I have a AKA of the fake ID and it's still attached to me to this day. So when you're going to new cities, then Mm -hmm. is it difficult to figure out like where to work? Because um, like, well, you know where the track is, but like, did people target you for being new? Like, were you not allowed certain places because pimps already own that part of the track, you know, stuff like that. So how did you just show up and make money? That was your pimp's job, right? To know where for us to stand. And usually those pimps had networks, correct? So... Um, you know, one pimp would know another pimp in a city and be like, okay, me and my girls are here, where, where, you know, and then they would strategically place us on places. But obviously other girls who were territorial would come and be like, get off my fucking shit. Or like, you know, like, aren't you too young? Or like, you know, a lot of older, the older ladies really took a, I wouldn't say like, didn't like us, but you could tell that they were trying to be protective of us, right? Like they- didn't want us out there. At one point, I chose to a black man who, and I was also bought back again by my original, by my pimp. Like the boyfriend pimp always bought me back. He always got me back. Thank God. Oh, so that means he loves you. Huh? No. <laughs> Is that what you thought back then? Yes, absolutely. I thought he was like the cat's meow. Um, I thought he loved me, but he was very abusive. Like it wasn't, um, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a fairy tale. That's for sure. Like, um, when I talk about the stun gun, like, he stunned me with stun gun. He manipulated, he he did so much mental manipulation on my brain that I literally thought he was going to kill my family if I didn't work for him, if I didn't sell my body and give him all of the proceeds. I literally thought my family was in danger. Do you think now, looking back, that if you were to, like, go against him, that he would do those things? No, but that's why these mm-hmm. pimps prey on the young, naive not mm-hmm. mentally stable, young. Well, your brain's not even fully developed until you're 20 no. fucking five. So no. yeah, of course. So I really thought that these people were going to kill my family. And um, by the grace of God, I was able to, like, he bought me back from this this African-American man who was going to take me to Montreal. I don't think I would have survived Montreal. He probably would have injected me with drugs. I would have been completely messed up. But by this time, I was messed up already on drugs. I was... So why is was Montreal such a bad place? Just It was just where a lot of the pimps came from. And nowadays, they all come to Alberta because there's more money in Alberta, apparently. So that's super yeah. common. Yeah, I used to... Someone... I had a friend that worked in the airport, and she told me that you'd see all the pimps and the girls with their suitcases and their heels. Like, nowadays, like, it happens now. They come out here. Yeah, it's... You know, like I said, it was like glamour days. It was insane. Like, the... The amount of pimps and hoes and and traffickers, like we call them traffickers now, but like it was just so normal. It was almost normalized behavior 
for all of us to be out there and doing this, like living in our little, little family of, you know, sister prostitutes. And it was, it's unreal. Yeah. And every, and what you're talking about, like everyone was blaming you, but you were just a kid, like everyone's victim blaming, thinking that you're the problem. Like, uh, like nowadays, I don't think that shit would fly or it yeah. shouldn't no. like horrible. No, it, it was, um, it was difficult. It was a difficult time in my life when we did come back to Winnipeg. Cause we did Calgary, we did Regina, um, Toronto. When we did come back to Winnipeg, it was difficult for me to work because of me always getting thrown in. So then finally I, 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 I entered, um, turf got a hold of me. Like I was saying mm-hmm. earlier, turf got a hold of me. So this is when you left the bit. No, you were still working or you were still working. with, okay. So you're still, still with, the, with pimp. the pimp. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I stayed with the pimp for about six months after I squared out. Mm-hmm. I stayed with the pimp for a bit. And my last day with him, like there's a couple of instances, the, the last two times I saw him, but the last time, one of the last times that I lived with him, he beat me, he took a bath and it was the middle of winter. And while he was in the bath, I escaped. And I ran across the street and I banged on somebody's door. They let me in. They gave me cab fare to my biker cousin's house. Um, from that day forward, I was protected by them. He showed up at the Marion Hotel. Before that, um, I had been hanging out at the Marion Hotel selling cocaine for him. I was extremely addicted to cocaine at this time. Extremely addicted. I was 82 fucking pounds. I um, beaten every day. So then when... When he beat me for the last time and I escaped that, I went to my cousin's. I stayed there. He came to the Marion searching for me all the time. He would come searching for me. And there is a man. He lives in the UK now because he was deported to the UK. He's actually passing away as we speak. Like he's on his deathbed right now, which is very sad. But um, I was being beaten in the Marion parking lot by him, by my, by my pimp. Mm-hmm. And he came out. Sean came out. He and I never saw my pimp again. He's not dead. But I know where he lives. I know exactly where he is. It's why I don't come to a city in Canada. There is one city that I will never, ever work in. And that is Kelowna, British Columbia. Sorry, Kelowna. <laughs> no, sorry. Wow. He actually works with youth. Doing what? He's an addictions counselor. I never charged him. I charged my first pimp who sodomized me. Never charged my second pimp. Okay, so you charged the first one. When did you charge him? How did that happen? Charged him when I was 18 years old. Nothing happened. So that's why I didn't charge the second pimp. Because why bother, right? And so if you remember my history when I was a child and I charged my best friend's dad with abuse and nothing happened there. And then I charged a pimp with living off the availance of prostitution. Nothing happened there. So why bother? Well, totally. The justice system has completely failed you. So do you know why nothing was able to be done about this? Um, No proof. We didn't have smartphones to screenshot. We didn't have anything. So there was no proof that he did anything to me because it was months after I was exploited by him. Right. So we're going, this is like a couple of years later, I went to try and recharge him and be like, this is what he did. This is the room we were in. I brought him to the room that he victimized me in. You know, I, I I tried and nobody would talk, right? So other girls that he had victimized, they weren't prepared to talk. So it, it was very difficult to charge your exploiters back then because there was no proof. You needed proof. I mean, even today, it's hard to charge people. And the majority of sexual assault cases like that are not, like, persecuted, you know? Like, it's just, 
yeah, the system is basically set up to fail you or fail women in these instances. It's, yeah, it's very sad. That's why decriminalization of sex work is probably like the the uh, main topic of focus is because if it's decriminalized on both sides, uh, there's more resources offered. Um, the clients feel more comfortable about coming forward, about being robbed, about being scammed, ripped off, you know, threatened, bullied, you know, because let's face it, we're not the only ones who suffer abuse in this business. Clients suffer abuse as well. Like they're scammed, they're robbed. I know men that are literally blackmailed because they got, women got a hold of their Facebook profile and their wives, you know, like, so it's not only women that are victimized, men are as well. And men would feel more comfortable coming forward and being like, Hey, that girl, I just went and saw a girl and something was not right with her. She was shaking in a fucking corner. There's something not right with her. But right now, as it stands in Canada, if people are listening and they're not from Canada, it's legal to sell sex, but illegal to buy sex. So that means the clients are criminalized and the sex workers are not. So, yeah, that's why when these things happen to clients, unfortunately, they don't feel comfortable coming forward. And, yeah, they could get charged or get in trouble. And, like, it happens. For years, sex workers in Canada fought for decriminalization. We got it. Yay. Only to be told, but you can't sell it to anybody. <laughs> so yeah. what kind of joke is that? That is a sick it's, joke. It's a joke. And the, the way the laws are written online, and like you, anyone can look this up, Bill C-36, it's to lessen the demand for prostitution. Because they think <laughs> that one day prostitution will be abolished, and this is the stepping stone to that. And there is organizations, even in Edmonton, that want to abolish prostitution, think that it's all going to go away. And it's not. Prostitution is the oldest profession in the world. These laws only serve to hurt sex workers and push it further underground. And if it was just decriminalized on both ends, it would make it a lot safer for the workers and the clients. Look at what happened when you criminalized prostitution. Look, look, look at what, look at the kids. Like I was reading an article and in 1994, there was so many kids being trafficked on the streets of Calgary it was disgusting. I think I screenshotted it. It, it. It's disgusting that these kids are just looked at as problems, problem children, problem freaking children, right? We're not problem children. Like, yeah, these children grew up in probably horrific we're environments. Delinquents. Oh, God. It's committing a crime. Society's increase, increasing focus on sexual abuse of children has largely ignored prostitution. And it did. Back then, it did. Manitoba came up with the Manitoba strategy in 2002. Um, and with that was um, they were going to educate sex workers. Um, there was, that's when the federal law of raising the age of consent from 14 to 16, they did that because of sex, sex sexual exploitation. That is the reason why that age of consent went up to 16. It's because so many men, perpetrators, were being caught with 14-year-old girls, 15-year-old girls, couldn't do anything because the age of consent was 14. So now they've raised it to five to 16 with a five-year clause. So with that is, so if I'm a 16-year-old child and my boyfriend is 21 years old, he falls under that five-year clause, so he will not be charged with sexual exploitation. It is to get the men that are 40, 50, 60 years old who are preying on those 16, 15, 14-year-old girls. And Manitoba was a huge part in changing all of those, those things, like the Manitoba strategy. Was was huge. Like um, 2008, there was Tracy's Trust, which was um, a woman, a little girl, 14-year-old girl was found hanging in, in a garage and she was a sexually exploited youth. And like, she felt like her life was so hopeless that she hung herself in a garage. 
With that, I spoke on a government level at summits um, in Manitoba. It's, it's called Tracia's Trust. It's It was an inquest into her death, pretty much. And out of that came that they needed to develop, you know, like home was developed in that, the hands of Mother Earth. You know, sexually exploited youth were sexually exploited youth. They weren't known as juveniles, you know. So in, in 2002, when all of that came into effect, you know, our language changed. That was a huge part of the 2002 was language. You know, you can't be running around calling 14-year-olds prostitutes. Mm -hmm. They're sexually abused, you know? So when I was a kid and I was being sexually abused, I was just known as a hoe, right? A prostitute. I was belittled. I was abused. I was starved. I was um, forced to take drugs. I was beaten. I was stabbed. I was, you know, there are so many things that happened to me as a child that children should not ever have to go through, you know, and it's molded me into the person that I am today. Like I, like, like my wife, I own my flaws. Mm -hmm. I'm a very strong voice for sexual exploitation of children. And uh, I believe that people need to be kind. Yeah. I'm so sorry. No, don't be sorry. I'm just like, it's so much like, holy shit, the story, because I knew a little bit, but like literally all that you have said to me is, well, I was trafficked across Canada. We could talk about that on the podcast. And that's, <laughs> and I was like, okay. And yeah, the story is so much more. It's just crazy. It's like yeah. insanity. Okay. So let's go back then. So you left your pimp mm -hmm. and then, Probably. okay. So you were what, 18 then? 18 -ish. ish. Okay. And then. So what happened from there? Where um, you got it? Did you get a job? Like I um, started working in the bars as a waitress. Um, it it actually really helped me because I wasn't allowed to keep any of my money anyway. So the odd time, it was funny because the odd time, like if I was broke, I would go and I would jump on track for for a second, right? And I would like consensually, like I wasn't being pimped. Nobody was taking my money. It was Christmas, for instance, Christmas time. Mm -hmm. I went and I made some Christmas money so I could buy my family some Christmas presents, right? Mm -hmm. And But it wasn't, I wasn't pimped. And, you know, mm -hmm. that felt good. Mm -hmm. That felt like, look, mm -hmm. I can make my own money and I don't got to give it to anybody. Taking your power back. Correct. So there was the odd time that I did that. But then I was working in the bars and the bars gave me a sense of, I got my hourly wage, plus I was making tips. So, you know, it was like I was getting paid every day. So that addiction to money that I had had, even though I couldn't see the money, which was kind of weird, right? Like, because I wasn't actually spending the money. They were. But it, there was still that addiction. It was still ha getting handed into my hands. So I still saw that money. So the, the waitressing really helped me get out of the sex trade. I got into a relationship with a very um, non-emotional man. I had a baby. He was older than me, of course, because I did not relate to people my own age. I don't relate to people my own age now because I'm, I'm kind of immature, but <laughs> but I, I didn't relate to people my own age at all because I'd been through so much trauma that there was no way I could relate to an 18-year-old, right? There's just no fucking way. Yeah, yeah. So I was with older an older man for five years. We had a baby. I got bored. I left him, left, took my baby, spent my rent money, ended up my girlfriend told me that there was this place I could give hand jobs in a hot tub. And I went, what? I didn't know. I thought there was only truck. I had no idea there was this whole other world. And then that started my journey in massage parlors. Okay. So that's where we're going to wrap it up. Me and Nikki ended up talking for nearly two hours. So I think it's best if we end here and I will release the part two next week. Make sure you tune in to hear that. 
And if you're interested in following Nikki, all of her information will be in the description of the podcast, her Twitter, her website, and her OnlyFans. So make sure you take a look. And now to the advice with Ashlyn. Somebody reached out and asked me, eventually, do you think proof of a COVID test or vaccine will be required to book an SP or is it already headed that way? Um, I can only speak for myself. I haven't really seen anything about this online other than girls like taking their clients temperatures when they walk in. I think if rapid testing becomes like more widespread and the public is able to get rapid tests easier, maybe perhaps as of proof of vaccine, I will not be asking people if they're vaccinated and I will not be answering anyone's questions if they're asking me if I'm vaccinated I am just simply not willing to have that conversation with people. I just think it's too politicized right now. And I will just say I am planning on getting vaccinated. So if someone else is coming to see me and they are not, that's not really my issue. So I'm protected and that's on them if they don't want to get vaccinated. I'm just not willing to discuss that with clients because I don't need to, you know, talk to anti-vaxxers. I just, I, I don't have time for that. I'm exhausted. But maybe, I don't know. I can only speak for myself. Somebody else sent me a message and it says, I'm a little self-conscious and asking, but I would like to enjoy performing oral sex on women and make it more enjoyable for both parties. I have a bad gag reflex. It's a mental thing I really struggle with in regards to the taste. I'm very picky in the taste of foods I like, so I don't know if that's it. The very few ladies I've been with have always had great hygiene slash reviews, so that isn't an issue. It's simply me. I came across flavored lubes like watermelon and other flavors, and most have great reviews. Have you perhaps tried flavored lubes before? Would you be okay with it? And other escorts, possibly, if I explained my situation? I find it frustrating. I apologize for being so long-winded. Uh, no, don't apologize. That was not long-winded. So if it's simply like a taste thing, I use flavored lube when I'm giving a blowjob. It's not because like people's dicks taste gross. Just I don't know. It just helps my dry mouth and regular lube doesn't taste good. So yeah, flavored lubes I think are common and I would assume lots of other escorts are familiar with them. If it's really a taste thing, you could try the flavored lube. I would not be offended if somebody wanted to try that with me, but there's also dental dams and I think that might be a better bet for you. So a dental dam, it's basically like a little latex sheet that you put over where you're going to lick, you know, and you can put a little bit of lube on that if you want or underneath. And yeah, it just acts as like a safe sex barrier as well. And then, yeah, you'll have no vagina taste in your mouth if that's the problem. I would definitely give that a try. But if you don't like going down on girls just in general, you know, I don't think any escort expects you to go down on them. So I would just not if you don't want to do it. But if it's simply the taste thing and you, you enjoy the act of doing it, then try a dental dam. That's my recommendation. And thank you so much for your question. And thank you, everybody, for getting to the end of this episode. I am very excited for next week's episode. Make sure you tune in. And if you have any questions for future episodes, please reach out to me on Twitter or OnlyFans, wherever. And as I said before, all my information will be linked down below, as well as Cougar Nikki's. And I hope everybody is enjoying the nice spring weather. And yeah, have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Wednesday. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Life Skills. Follow Ashlyn on social media at No Life Skill or at Adore Ashlyn. Be sure to like, comment, and hit that subscribe button. We'll see you on the next show.